Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. I want to start with a song with uh, uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. The class is called, I don't know if I gave it the title, Don't Fear the Reaper. It's about the angel of death in Talmudic literature. But some of you, I imagine, are young enough to remember the Blue Oyster Cult classic called Don't Fear the Reaper, which I believe came out in the mid-70s. Uh, I put the words here, but one of the things I think that is um, interesting about the song, and we're going to talk about it in this, through the lens of the Talmudic stories, is why are people afraid of death? What is it about death that causes so much fear in us? I mean, that's what he's trying to urge in the song is don't fear the reaper. Don't be afraid of death. Now, the author of the song, I I put here a quote by the author of the song that I thought was interesting because the song could be taken a little bit the wrong way. He he writes, or at least he was quoted, um, I felt that I just achieved some kind of resonance with the psychology of people when I came up with that. I was actually kind of appalled when I first realized that some people were seeing it as an advertisement for suicide or something that was not my intention at all. It is like not to be afraid of death as opposed to actively bring it about. It's basically a love song where the love transcends the actual physical existence of the partners. Um, so I don't want, we're not going to spend too long on the song. The song isn't my main focus um, today, but uh, the, the, you can see why, if you look through the lyrics later on, you can see why the author may have been accused of glorifying suicide, which, of course, um, would not be a popular message. But the, the basis of what he was at least saying as a reading in the song is, um, is we shouldn't be afraid of death. And I think that I think all human beings, I, I imagine all human beings have a fear of death. Um, and I think that that leads us to ask the question uh, that I want to look at uh, through Talmudic stories tonight, why are we so afraid of death? What is it about death, um, the end of our lives, that causes us such apprehension? And also, why does the author, and I don't think he's alone in this, want to encourage his listeners to not fear death? Uh, which I think is common between this song and um, and Talmudic literature. And the truth is a lot of books about death uh, do both things. They acknowledge the existence of death, which I think everybody, uh, any mature adult, um, not just in times of COVID, but anytime, uh, death is constantly present in, in our lives. Um, uh, all adults have to at some point ask themselves the question, why am I afraid of death? What do I think about my own death? What do I think about the death of others? Um, and how does that fear impact our lives? Uh, I think that that's one of the big questions that we ask ourselves and that you find a lot in popular books um, about death. The, um, the notion that fearing, overly fearing death, uh, and I'm not talking tonight about like the fear of death that causes us to not or prevents us from doing like stupid things like, I don't know, jumping off tall buildings without a secure parachute or things that are like obviously dangerous. I'm talking about a relatively uh, average way of living your life, going and not taking things that are like doing, engaging in extremely um, dangerous actions. But uh, how, does, how does the fear of death 
uh, impact our lives? Well, how do we live our lives differently? Both, um, and I think tonight I'm going to look primarily at ourselves, um, not a, a really a discussion about the fear of other people dying. I think the fear of other people dying is, uh, you know, how do we imagine going on in our lives without those people around? Uh, and we know that that's going to happen, whether it's sooner or later, every single one of us is going to have um, unless you die a very, yourself a very early death, um, every single one of us is going to experience the loss of other people dying. But that's not the stories that we're going to look at um, today are not about our fear of loss of other people. They're about comprehending our own, our own end of existence, um, which I think is also relevant to Rosh Hashanah and, um, and Yom Kippur. Uh, when we talk about the book of life and death, uh, and we talk about um, thinking about our own continued existence, whether we're grateful for it um, or whether we're apprehensive that it might, uh, we might be leading into difficulties in the time coming. Um, Rosh Hashanah, I think, is a time to think about uh, remembering, especially Yisker, to remember other people, but it's also a time to think about um, our own lives and our own um, eventual demises. So we're going to look back a little bit, a look back earlier than the 1970s. Um, the Torah itself, and some of this is going to be what Rebecca might call my analytical side, um, looking at the historical development of things. This notion of the Malach HaMavet, the angel of death, or the Grim Reaper, as he is called, portrayed with his scythe in popular literature. As far as I know, many cultures have this kind of figure, this figure that is in charge, uh, not quite a divinity, but somebody who is appointed by God, um, whose powers come through some kind of divinity to take people's lives. Uh, and Jewish culture is no exception. Uh, the Torah, the Torah has nothing about a Malach HaMavet. There are, the closest we get to maybe a Malach HaMavet in the Torah, the angel of death in the Torah is something like the, uh, the avenging angel that comes to Egypt, Right and, and, and kills the firstborns in, in Egypt. That's an angel, a malach, who does that. The word malach amavet, as far as I know, only appears in the book of Proverbs. And there it's already sort of a, um, a, a, a metaphor. Right? melech the king's wrath is a messenger of death, meaning if you get on the wrong side of the king, you're going to get trouble, but a wise man can appease it. Right? So we're not talking about literal malach but the very fact that the author of Proverbs uses the malach as a metaphor means that he has some kind of concept of the angel of death. So we can imagine by the late biblical period, there already was a special messenger. Right? Angel isn't the proper word, I think, in Judaism. It's more like messenger agent of God. A malach amavid is a, an angel of God appointed over death. Um, sometimes in rabbinic literature, you're not going to spend long on this. Sometimes in rabbinic literature, you get the notion that the angel of death isn't to be taken literally, but it's a metaphor for our own uh, evil urges. So for instance, Reish Lakish says, who Satan, who Yetzer Hara, who Malach The Sat Satan, which is usually portrayed as this person who makes claims um, against, uh, against people to God, right? A, a prosecutor if you will, of people, the Satan is the evil inclination, and that's the angel of death, which is a very non-literal 
way I think of looking at the angel of death. The angel of death is just the, the processes that processes that bring forth our own death. Um, but that is not always the angel of death has a personification in rabbinic literature. Um, and I want to begin, we're going to look at mainly two stories tonight. Maybe we'll get to a third. The first story appears in uh, Masechet Moed Katan and Tractate Moed Katan, which is the third chapter of Moed Katan is all about um, Avelut, about mourning. So it's a natural way, a natural place to have a extended story about rabbis who are dying or at the, about the point of their death, and, um, and, and, and what do they say to their companions, how do they act at their, um, at their point of death. So we're going to begin reading. I want to be able to, um, Rebecca, you think I have, can ask, like, stop and have people, like, ask questions or make comments? I think we have enough. We should be able to do that, yeah. Okay, because I don't like talking for an hour straight. It's just too much on my vocal cords. So we're going to read parts of the stories, and then I'll give a little break, and we'll see um, what people ask some questions, and we'll see if we can get some participation as well. Um, Rav Saorim, I'm just going to read it in English. I think it's just a little easier for, for time's sake. Rav Saorim, but the Hebrew uh, Aramaic is on the right side. Rava's brother, while seated at Rava's bedside, saw him, Rava, going to sleep, right? Notice that there's already a little uh, metaphor there. They don't even want to say he's dying, he's passing away. But the story makes it clear that he's not just minam nem. He's not just um, going to take a nap. He's about to die. So Rav Saorim, his brother, Rava's brother, Rava is a very famous rabbi, um, is about to die. And Rava says to his brother, Go tell him, this him, is going to appear throughout this entire story. He's never named. But my assumption, and I think all of the assumptions of any commentator of him, is that this is not God, but this is the some kind of Malach an angel of death. He says to him, go tell him not to torment me. Meaning Rava says it to Rav, Se, uh, Rav Seorim. Now, what's, what's Rava fearing here? What's he afraid of? It sounds like he's afraid of like pain, simple, the pain of death. Um, And at that moment, and we're going to see this throughout the story, that moment of death may be painful. And I think when we think about, I mean, it's a morbid thought, but I do think that it's human and probably as most human things are sometimes beneficial to, to contemplate what our own death would be like. Um, it's the one, I don't know if it's the one, it's one experience at least I can think of that you'll, you'll, you'll never get to try it out. Um, even if something is, is like, you can imagine, you really, there's no way of knowing it. It's, it's the ultimate mystery. That's probably why there are so many mystical connections with that point of death. He fears it, right? By analogy, right? When something bad, something painful happens, it hurts a lot. And so if we imagine death to be the most painful moment, then maybe death is going to be extremely painful. But again, there's no way of knowing. And he wants to send um, his, his brother to, um, uh, uh, to do this. I don't know what's a little unclear is that, like, how is Rav Soorim supposed to communicate with the angel of death? Um, but, right, I mean, Rava knows that Rav Sorim seems to be his brother is alive and well. How does he communicate with the angel of death? We don't know. But I will say that, like, sometimes I think that people ask other people to do things that we know that they can't do. 
Uh, and this might happen more often at critical moments of our lives. There's people that we think can do things, even though like on one level, we know that there's no way to do it, but we express our anxiety by asking somebody to do something that we know that they, they just can't do for us. So Rav Saorim replies, are you not his intimate friend, his shoshvin, which is a striking word because a shoshvin is usually one used to like, uh, like a best man or uh, like a, a bridesmaid would be a shoshvina at a wedding, right? So Rav Saorim says back to Rava, says, look, hey, buddy, Rava, my brother of mine, aren't you a good friend of the Malach Hamavet? Don't you know him? Aren't you his Shoshvin? Now here I want to maybe stop and ask you, why would Rav Saorim think that Rava is an intimate friend of the Malach Hamavet? Maybe because he's uh, sickly or old. Oh, that's interesting. So as we get closer to death, um, which Rava is very close to death, then we become, let's say, partially familiar with the Malach Hamavet. Other thoughts? Helen, do you have something? No. Do you want to? Because of his studying. Did you say because he studies a lot? Because of his studying and because of his intellectual ability. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably, to me, that might be a, like a, what Rav Saorim is thinking. Like, Rava is known to be the greatest rabbi of his generation, or one of the great rabbis of his generation. Rav Saorim is not a rabbi we hear of. I don't know if we don't hear of him anywhere else, but he's certainly not a, in the top 100 list of rabbis. He's a, a, a relative nobody. And I think that we imagine that powerful, perhaps holy, saintly people have like powers that on the one hand, we probably think that they don't have, but we tend to ascribe to powerful, learned, (coughs) excuse me, holy people, powers that are like beyond the norm. And Rav Saorin might think that his, his power, his holiness, that gives him, and maybe his learnedness, that gives him some kind of familiarity with God. And if the Malach HaMavet is appointed by God, that would put him someone that will, the Malach HaMavet will listen to right? and perhaps um, uh, avoid him torturing. And Rava here comes up with a very interesting answer. Rava says back to him, since my mazal, meaning my luck, my, my time to come, the mazal here is sort of like forces beyond my control. Uh, has been delivered to him, meaning my time is here. I know I'm about to die. He pays no attention to me, which I think is one of those great ironies. I am not a, let's say, oh, by the way, um, Rebecca, if you see things in the chat that you think are um, relevant to come up, just pipe in because my like computer screen doesn't show like, I don't know, my screen isn't big enough. So I don't see the chat while I'm talking. So I see the people, I can see that people are chatting, which is great and having questions and comments, but it's helpful, Rebecca, if you bring them up while we're, um, while we're learning. I think one of the great paradoxes, right, of Rava that he's expressing over here is like, I had all this power while I was alive, while I was learning. Uh, I was intimate. He doesn't deny that he was intimate with a Malach HaMavid. He might have had b- powers beyond, uh, beyond the, the, the realm of earth, right? beyond the mundane. But at the, at the moment that they would be most useful to him, at that moment of death, they're not there anymore, which I think is something that, like again, I'm not a powerful, rich person. Um, but I imagine if I was a powerful, rich person, it would be frustrating 
to realize the one thing that you really don't have any control over or have very little control over is that moment of death. Uh, there are all sorts of moment, uh, movements today uh, by extremely rich people like uh, Elon Musk and uh, other uh, and Steve and uh, and Jeff Bezos to to try to ward off death forever. But I think we all know where that's going, and that uh, while maybe they'll help longevity, I, I don't think most of us would lend a lot of credence to the notion that uh, death will be defeated. Uh, and Rava loses that at his one critical moment. All of his learning, all of his holiness makes no difference to him because his time has come. Okay, we're going to move on. The second, second scene two in the very same story. Rav Saurim then said to him, show yourself to me after you die. Okay? Is this not like, this to me is like one of the great questions that we would all love to know but we can't know it. Uh, I think maybe probably everybody's familiar with those stories that you read in popular literature. I think there was a book recently about people who sort of die on the operating table and see a light, and they're usually it goes something like this, if I'm familiar with it. They see a light, they're drawn to the light, they almost go to the light, and then they pull back. Right? What attracts people to these stories uh, is that this is the ultimate unknown. Uh, wouldn't we, I mean, we say it all the time, that there are, are things that people can never know. We can't know what was like before we were born, and we cannot know what is like after our death, except in this story. Uh, this story, as often happens, I think, in, in literature, it can uh, um, go beyond the bounds of the possible to entertain the fantastical. Up until now, the story has been very deeply psychological, if you will. And now it moves into the realm of wishful fantasy, which I think is the proper role uh, of fiction. Uh, fiction often will allow us to imagine things happening that we know will never happen. That's why we have fiction. So he says to him, show me to yourself after you die. And he showed himself. Rava comes back. Uh, he comes back to his brother after he died. He asked, did you suffer pain? And he explained, Rava explains back to him, like the incision of a scalpel. Okay? I don't know how painful the incision of a scalpel is. Um, we're going to see later on some like assessments that it's not so, the certain thing that death isn't so painful. But he gives them the answer. Again, this is sort of wishful thinking on the story partner's note that we can find out what the moment of death was like, even though we know that we can't find out. All right, that's the end of the first story. Not, well, the first, this is a long cycle of stories in Moit Katan. Um, any comments, thoughts on the first cycle on these characters, Rava, Rav Saorim? Let me see, I'll take a look at the chat, see if there's... Uh, yeah, Larry, or Diane. You know, mention the 10th plague. Uh, the angel of death, that's the, it's not, he's not called the Malach HaMavet. I'm just answering a few of your questions. He's not called the Malach HaMavet, but there is a Malach there. Um, but there's a, there's an angel. For those of you asking the history of the angel, it's the, it's, there's an angel uh, that goes out um, and, and sort of does the doing. Mazal. Uh, God unleashes something, it's going to be destruction. Okay. I'm not, I don't want to get too far into this, the history of the angel of death. Um, but uh, much more interested in, uh, in the sort of the psychology that's portrayed in these stories of 
rabbis approaching their own deaths and and just to think to reflect about like what it means to be reading these stories why rabbis tell these stories um even if we don't have a literal i don't think you have to take these stories as literal right i don't think that like rava literally has to have come back to Rav Sorim. these are imaginative stories uh where we what would it be like to know what death is like how, how, i mean that's a question you maybe want to answer for yourself, not right now, but to think about what, if somebody told you this is exactly what death is like, how would that change your life? How, how might that change your action? If somebody were to tell you how painful death is, um, if somebody were to give you answers to things that you can't answer, how might that change the way you live? Or might it not at all? Um, it's things that I think that, um, you know, I'm relatively young, but even as a relatively young person, I think that people think about these things and rabbis do too. All right, let's move on to the next story. Hey, hold on. Diane and Larry, or Larry had a question. Okay, go ahead. Good. So it's not really a question. It's, it's a reflection. So I think one of the fears in death is the loss of self. And there's a sense in this story that Rava actually remains um, himself in a sense, and and just a kind of a wishful thinking here on the part of his brother that that in fact he he remains even after he's died his his self is some some wholeness there. Yeah. Um, thank you. That's a um, it's a very true comment. When he comes back, he's still Rava. Now, some of this is connected to the question of life after death what happens to the dead, which is right. Another one of those unanswerable questions that, um, you know, whether or not you have like, it, it, it's, I don't know how it, it is possible to imagine yourself after you're done. Uh, I, I, like the world without yourself, it may be beyond the, the human comprehension and uh, maybe we can sort of rationally acknowledge. I mean, I like to, th- I'll speak for myself, in a rational sense, I can acknowledge, right, the world is going to go on without me. I will not be in this world someday. Um, but how to imagine what that means is weird when you think about it. Um, but it does get into the connection of, um, let's put it this way, if I imagined that I was going to have some kind of continuous cognitive existence after my death, contemplating death would be very, very different. And how rabbis think of that is a complicated issue with many different answers that I don't think these stories are about. But it's a very um, – what's your, your your name one more time? Diane. Diane. It's a very good comment that I think that it's vastly different to th- consider death in a world where, let's say, our belief in life after death is probably for most of us – more in more in lines and like we'll live in the memories of our loved ones than a I imagine a very literal belief that we could come back or we'll continue to exist more or less exactly as we are and rabbis have much firmer belief in that than probably modern people do so it's definitely a huge caveat on these on all these stories. Josh, uh, I, Josh, I had, a, I had a question. Yeah, the translation for tzaran is torment here. But Saran is grief or sorrow, sadness, but it's not death. So my question is, do, are we really sure that 
what Rava is saying here, and then in the next story, I think it's similar as well, is actually about the act, is actually about the state of dying, the fact of de- death, or is it about the process of dying and sorrow about being dead or pain from the actual experience of death itself? Yeah, I think it's about pain more. It's partly about, it's a lot about pain. So they're accepting death. Death is not a question here about fending off death. It's death to be as gentle as possible to the person who's dying, not not to the ones who are left. left yeah, I don't think that's too much to the, the sorrow of the people who are left behind. No, the sorrow here, I think the best translation is pain. I don't know like why I have it as torment. Uh, tell him not to cause me pain would have been just as good of a translation. Um, so yes, these stories are more about the moment of dying than they are about the lack of existence after death. That is correct. Okay, let's go on to the next story. Um, Rava, while seated at the bedside of Rav Nachman, saw him going to sleep. And again, so Rava, the one who died in the previous story, this is going back earlier. Uh, the stories are out of chronological order, and he sees his own teacher. Rav Nachman is his teacher. And again, uh, Rava says to Rav Nachman, uh, Rav Nachman says to Rava, tell him not to torment me. Tell him not to, come, not to give me pain. And Rava said to him, are you not an important man? Or would we get the same kind of comment again? Right? Aren't you an important man? You, Rav Nachman, you're one of the great Tamidei Chachamim, you're one of the great scholars. You should go tell the Malach HaMavet not to torment you. And Rav Nachman said to him, who is esteemed, who is regarded, who is distinguished, which is some strange words actually here, man safin, man rakir, are very strange words, meaning that there is no, again, there is no importance. Right? When we face death, it's not just that, like the previous answer, since your mazal has been taken away, in the face of death, there is no distinction. Um, and we acknowledge that, right? People, not only everybody dies, but there is very little connection between the importance of a person, the prestige, the, the, the holiness, really very little about a person's life that has any bearing on, on how they're going to die. And Rav Nachman acknowledges that in this story. Um, the story continues, it repeats itself a little bit from the previous story. Rava then says to him, show yourself to me after you die. I want to know what it was like to die. He showed himself. He said, did you suffer pain? He asked him. Rava's asking Rav Nachman. He replied, as little as the taking of a hair from milk, which is a little bit like, I don't know exactly know what the metaphor of taking hair from milk is, um, but it doesn't sound very painful. Like it's just maybe like a little pinprick. Right? Very, very little. Um, and were the Holy One, blessed be he, God, to say to me, go back to that world as you were, I would not want to, for the fear of death is great. Right? That, I think, is a very important addition in the second um, story. What, what does Rav Nachman mean when he says, look, dying was very, very pain, was relatively painless. It felt almost nothing. But I would not go through it again. Right? Even if God were to say to me, go back to that world, I would not want to do it. Why? Anyone want to try to chime in? Why? Why does Rav Nachman not want to go through it again, even though it was painless? Rebecca, you call? Because again, I don't see people's names. I'm playing for hands. Oh, yeah, Jay. I think, um, I think he wouldn't want to do it because he remembers all the pain and suffering of life. And he's, he doesn't want to have to go through having to go through that 
pain of feeling what he did before he died again. Hmm. Could be, right? It's like sort of like if they asked you if you could go back to high school. You know, on the one hand, like, uh, maybe it'd be great, but like, high school was a little painful too, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't mind going back to maybe 30, but 14, I don't really have a lot of, like, excitement to go back to 14 because 14 was a little difficult, especially, I guess, for teenage boys. All right, that's possible. I mean, he doesn't want to, like, living life again. Life was difficult for him. Any yeah, other thoughts? I I think the whole uh, fear of dying is probably worse than the dying itself. So that's what he does not want to go back to, the fear of dying, in my opinion. Yeah. That seems to be like the immediate context leads like the fear of death, the fear of it, right? The, the, the Hebrew actually translates either way, but the fear of it is greater, which I, I think that the rabbis here in these stories are acknowledging this sort of paradox I think when we probably, like, I don't know, like, there are very different kinds of way of dying. But that one moment, that precise moment, when a person goes from life to death, there are probably a lot more painful moments in your life. Again, there's no way of knowing. These stories are fantasies. But there, it's not hard to imagine that there are more painful moments of life. But the apprehension of that moment, the fear of it, is a major motivating factor. I mean, just do for yourself a, a, um, a thought experiment. What if people weren't afraid of dying? I mean, there would be a lot of problems in the world, right? That would create a lot of havoc and destruction and, and lives would probably be a lot shorter. But imagine if we weren't afraid of dying. And there is definitely a positive role in the world to being afraid of dying, on the other hand, the story is at the same time acknowledging is that that's not a particularly painful moment. Um, it's, 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 it's the fear itself that, and what causes that fear of dying? What is it that, what is it that causes Rav Nachman to think the fear of dying was so great? Any thoughts? I mean, you don't have to ask even for Rav Nachman. Why is it that people fear dying so much? Maybe, maybe because uh, life is such a beautiful gift that uh, the fact, the idea of losing it is painful. Yeah, that's, that's definitely part of it, right? The, 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 the you know, the, the imagination. And again, it's a very hard thing to contemplate because when I, um, when I don't eat food on Yom Kippur, I miss it. When I don't have, I don't know, something that I like to have, I miss it. That's because I'm still there. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that missing something when the I is no longer there, right? When we think about our life without, when we think about our lives ending, I think that one of the things that we find that's sort of like, we would relate to it as if it was like when somebody else dies. When, uh, when somebody you love dies, somebody you care about dies, you miss them, you're sad, you grief, you have intense grief over that person because you're there to have grief over that person. How is it that you have grief? Like when we imagine ourselves dying, we're having grief over ourselves, even though we know in an intellectual world, there won't be any I to have that grief anymore. It's a very, I think, puzzling moment uh, to contemplate. And Rav Nachman is acknowledging, which I think is probably universally true, that people fear death or most people fear death. Only like it's exceedingly odd, right? You, I don't know, in the movies, I don't know, maybe Batman doesn't fear death or some great warrior who's been trained in some kind of martial arts. But 
That's not normal. Right? It is exceedingly normal to fear death. Most people, almost every single person does. All right, let's go on a little bit. There's a few more stories. I'd like to get a little bit um, to the uh, um, a couple other stories. Let's skip um, one story. Uh, well, let's keep going on a little bit. Well, I'll make some comments here. Rabbi Elazar was eating some truma. Truma is food given to koanim, to priests, when he appeared to him. The angel of Mavid appeared to him. Now we get him. The angel of death appears right straight forward to the guy who's about to die. Rabbi Elazar says, am I not eating truma? And it's called holy food? The moment passed. Meaning, here we get some wishful thinking. If you're engaged in something holy, you won't die. Right? Again, we know that this is not true. But it's wishful thinking that you could do something by acting in a holy way, you could avoid death. And I want to see how this plays out in some subsequent stories over here. He appeared to Rav Sheshit in the marketplace. The angel of death appears in the marketplace. I kind of picture some kind of like scary movie over here. And there's the, it's hard not to picture the angel of death as the grim reaper with like the, I don't know, scream, that television show, that movie with the whole outfit on like Halloween. I, I just can't help here with his side. In, in Jewish law, in Jewish tradition, he doesn't have a side. He either has a sword or a knife. But he kind of like some kind of like uh, kind of grim guy. I don't know. I always picture him still as the Grim Reaper. He said, have you come to take me in the marketplace like a beast? Come to the house. So here we get another like wishful thinking. We would all like to die in, in our homes or in a place that is comfortable for us and is dignified, right? This is a great source for the desire for the dignity of death, right? Um, if you read Atul Gawande's book, um, Being Mortal, which is a, a book I highly, highly recommend, um, he talks about um, the importance of the dignity of death and the difficulty that American society and maybe modern Western society is having um, with so many more people not dying in their own homes, instead dying in institutions. Um, this isn't quite that. They didn't have uh, hospitals, they didn't have nursing homes uh, back then but Rav Sheshit wants to die in the right place, he does not want to die in the market because that's a shameful death he appeared to Rav Ashi in the marketplace, uh, a later rabbi he said, Rav Ashi says, wait for me 30 days and I shall go over my studies, since you say in heaven above, happy is he who comes here to heaven with his Talmud in his hands another case of wishful thinking we would all love to be able to say to death Give me another 30 days, right, so that I can be prepared. For Ravashi, Ravashi wants to go into the Olam Haba, right? There is, as, um, as Helen, I think it was, who said earlier, there is a notion of continued, some kind of continued existence, although Ravashi here admits it's not the same. He's not going to be able to go to Olam Haba, the world to come, and continue learning. He's got to get the work done here. Uh, today, I would say, like, you know, the normal request would be, like, I know I'd like 30 more days with my family. I'd like 30 more days with my children, with my wife, with my parents, whoever it is. I'd like a little bit more time just to get everything in order, which for some people happens, and needless to say, for other people, it doesn't happen. It's, it's, what, what definitely doesn't happen is that you get to tell the Malach HaMavit, give me 30 days. So he came again on the 30th day. The Malach HaMavit comes right on time. Rav Ashi says, what's all this urgency? Like, uh, you couldn't give me like one extra day? Like, why do you have to be so medactic, so quick on the time, right? Why do you have to come then? Why, you know, what are you rushing me out of here for? 
He replied, Rav Huna Barnatan is close on your heels, and no kingship encroaches upon another, even by a hair's breadth. Meaning uh, something else that we acknowledge, that there is a time for people to go. There's a time for people to move on. Uh, here it has to do with the leadership. Uh, Ravashi is this dominant figure in the rabbinic world. And as long as he's around, no one else can take over his role. But his role as leader of the rabbinic academy has come to an end. And it's time for him to move along. I, I, according to this story, the only way for him to do that is for him to die. Uh, but it does also speak to another realization that I think we all have, that there is a time for us in this world, and then there's a time when that will come to an end. Um, I don't know when that is. It's different for every person. But uh, if you contemplate the other mental action, what would happen if I lived forever? Uh, that's not, it has bad results as well. Um, as you can see from like literature, I'm always fascinated by literature about immortal human, immortals. I think a lot of people are fascinated by it because the imagination of what would it be like not to fear death and to live forever is uh, is a thought exercise that is sometimes very frightening, usually does not end up bringing uh, much comfort. Um, Now, Angel, going on another story, he couldn't overcome Rav Chista since his mouth was never silent from repeating his learning. Rav Chista was constantly learning the ideas, the Malach HaMavit can't take you while you're learning. Even when I was like a little kid, I remember the rabbi's son who like said, if he was like praying, like even like his little kids, he knew if he was praying, the Malach HaMavit couldn't come. But of course you can't do that ever. So he went and sat on a cedar tree outside the study hall. So the Malach HaMavit goes and sits on a tree. Uh, waiting to get Rav Chista. And the tree cracked and Rav Chista stopped and he overcame him. So Rav Chista wants to learn, but he hears a boom of a tree cracking. He stops learning for one second and that's it. Which again speaks to this idea that, like to me, the modern equivalent of this is there's no way to put off death forever. Uh, you may be, uh, I don't know, Jeff Bezos worth $200 billion. Uh, and you may want to colonize Mars, colonize Mars, not colonize, colonize Mars. And you may want to invent, uh, I don't know, some elixirs uh, uh, that will prevent people from dying, but it's not going to work. Uh, and we all know that. And the story was tried 2,000 years ago, and it didn't work. Um, the last story in this cycle he couldn't even get close to Rav Chia. Rav Chia was like such a holy person, he couldn't get close to him because he was learning all the time. One day he disguised himself, the Malach as a poor man, and came and knocked on the gate saying, bring me out some bread. We have a lot of stories of the angel of death tricking people. There's, in pop culture and folk literature, there's always stories of the angel of death tricking people, very famous stories. Um, so he says, bring out some bread. They, meaning not Rav Chia, brought out some bread to him. He, the Malach HaMavid, said to Rav Chisda, don't you treat the poor kindly? Why not also treat kindly this man standing outside? He revealed himself, he showed him a fiery rod, and he surrendered his life. So there you get this shota, this fiery stick, and Rav Chia realizes his time has come. And the final part of the story is he goes willingly, which is like sort of the only person here who seems to go willingly uh, onto um, surrender himself willing to the Malach HaMavid. All right, I want to read one other story, and then we'll have a little time for some feedback. Um, 
There's another, another, it's not quite a cycle of stories, but another important set of stories about the Malach HaMavit appear in Ketubot. It appears in the context, if you're wondering why in Ketubot, which is about marriage contracts, it appears in the context of stories of husbands who develop bad diseases which give their wives the right to demand a divorce. Not a particularly nice thing to do, divorce your husband, but so be it. So the story is about people who have this disease called the ratan, which we don't really know what it is, but it sounds like some kind of very bad disease. Um, Rabbi Yochanan would cry out, be careful of the flies around the one with ratan. Uh, he seems to have known a little bit about that bugs can be um, uh, conveyors of disease. Rav Zera never sat with such a sufferer in the same draft of wind. So he was doing the social distance thing. Uh, before COVID. So he wouldn't sit with him because he knew that if you sat in close proximity to somebody with Ratan and you didn't have a proper ma- face mask on, you could get the Ratan disease. Rav Elazar never entered his tent, right? Also very relevant in uh, COVID-19, right? He knew that it was conveyed more indoors and it was outdoors. So he stayed away from being indoors with a dude with Ratan. Rav Ami and Rav Asi never ate any of the eggs coming from the alley in which he lived. All right, all these rabbis, sensible advice, right? In, in, in modern terms, we would praise all these rabbis. They don't want to get infected with the disease that these people have. And it seems like it's pretty good advice. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, who is a very important, interesting character in rabbinic literature, however, attached himself to these sufferers, and he studied the Torah. So Rav Yeshua ben Levi, um, I mean, today I think we might look at this very negative. If somebody told you, I'm going to go sit with people who have COVID and learn Torah with them, you might say, do us a favor and do it on Zoom. But um, when you think about what Rav Yeshua ben Levi is doing here, there's besides the, the issue of the Malach HaMavah, which we're going to get, it's also um, uh, remarkably kind to the sick. I mean, the, uh, the people who were, had sickness back then would have nothing, no one to care for them. And Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is willing to risk his own life uh, to go and care for people who are suffering. It's a little bit of like a Mother Teresa kind of echo uh, over here, which we, we do admire, I think, when, when people are um, helping those who suffer. And he studied Torah because he said, a lovely doe and a graceful mountain goat, a pasuk from Mishle, uh, from the book of Proverbs. If the Torah grants grace upon those who study it, would it not also protect them? I don't want to get into the issue of the Torah protecting you from disease. Um, I just note that there, the story begins with four rabbis who don't think that way. So it's not like, a, it's not like all rabbis thought, a hundred percent that if they study Torah, they won't get sick. Rabbi Yochanan, who is just as good, if not greater of a rabbi, Rabbi Zeir, Rabbi Yilazar, Rabbi Ami, Rabbi Asi, these are not schlepper rabbis. These are great rabbis who realize that if you sit with sick people, even if you study Torah, you're going to very likely get sick. Uh, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, I think, is, is projecting some kind of ideology more than a, a literal, realistic take on sickness and Torah study. In any case, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is this person who doesn't seem to have so much fear of death. So when he was about to die, they said to the angel of death, go and carry out his wish, which is, again, nice. We get a lot of wishful thinking here. The story imagines that since Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi was so fearless during his own life, he is treated like some way no one else in the history of the world that we know of is treated. No other Talmudic story is like this, that 
the angel of Mavid, the angel of death is going to have to carry out Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi's wish. When he came and showed himself to him, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, "Show me my place in Gan Eden." Right? Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi wants to know what his what's going to be like for him in the world to come, which is the question we would all love to know. Um, even if we have like a very rational take on the world. We would love to know what happens after death. It's the ultimate unknowable, and Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is going to get shown that by the Malach HaMavim. Very well, the angel of death replied. He says, okay. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said, give me your knife so you do not frighten me on your way. In other words, you're carrying this big knife. Right? It's scary. I think you're going to take me there. You're going to kill me right before I get there, and then you're going to stick me in God Eden. So the angel of death gave it to him. He gives him his knife. On arriving there, he lifted him up and showed him his place. The Malachamav, I guess, is tall, and there's like some kind of fence. I don't know exactly how it works. Around Gan Eden, picks up Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi and shows him what Gan Eden, what the world to come. I, I, I added in Gan Eden, it doesn't say it in the story, but it's some kind of otherworldly place. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi jumped and dropped on the other side of the wall. He escapes. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is that one person who gets to go to Gan Eden, to gets to go to the world to come without actually dying, right? There are a few biblical characters, Elijah is taken up to heaven, but the Torah doesn't, the Tanakh doesn't really have a full-blown sense of the world to come like the rabbis do. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is the one rabbi, I think, who's brought up to the Gan Eden before, without dying. And the story ends very interestingly. The angel of death seized him by the corner of his cloak. But Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi exclaimed, I swear that I will not go back. The Holy One, blessed be he, God says, if he had ever had an oath of his annulled, he must return. But if not, he need not return. Meaning Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is a person whose oaths he always respected. And his great holiness, his great way of keeping his word throughout his entire life, merits him that he's allowed to stay in Gan Eden. The angel of death said, give me back my knife. But Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi wouldn't give it back to him. That's the ultimate. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi now wants to go one step too far. He got to go to Gadnain without dying. And what does he want to do now? He wants to get rid of death completely. Right? If the angel of, Mav- and the angel of death doesn't have his, his knife, there will be no more death. A bot call, some kind of heavenly voice comes out and said to him, return it to him for it was required of all creatures. The angel of death needs to be there. There's an acknowledgement at the end of the story that it's one thing to have one exception in the history of humanity, if you will, of going to, going to Gan Eden without death. But human beings need death. And human beings need the Malach HaMavet. It's, um, it's something I want to leave you to, like, to think about, right? We're, we're basically done with the time. I'd like to finish on time. But it's something to think about, the, the positive natures of, of death. The, um, and I think uh, the book I recommended, Being Mortal, like, he talks about that a lot. Um, the benefit, right? The, the impact that thinking and contemplating and acknowledging and realizing the humanity of all of us uh, has positive benefits, for human beings, and, and God itself, God ordains it. By, by the way, it's a little bit of a reversal, and we see this other places, a source that we're not going to get to tonight, a little bit of a reversal of Breshit. When you think about the story in Genesis, it seems like the world was supposed to be created without death, right? And only 
after Adam and uh, Chava, Adam and Chava eat from the tree, that God tells them they will die. Right? It's a little unclear in Breshit. But Breshit seems to be the idea that like death could have been, it wasn't necessary to the world. But we don't live in that world anymore, maybe the story is acknowledging. We live in a world in which death is, is necessary for all creatures, not just for human beings, but for all creatures, humans and animals alike. I know it was a little morbid, um, but I think that maybe another thing to think about is like, we shouldn't, it's not bad for human beings to think about death, right? It's not morbid and you should never think about it. I'm not saying I want to go around thinking about death all the time, but thinking about death and talking about death and reading stories about death and acknowledging death is potentially a very healthy a way of living your life. Um, and so I'll leave you with that thought. Um, are there any last comments, thoughts? I see some very, um, can the angel of death kill without a knife? I don't know. I mean, the story, the story is a personification. Um, so, uh, so it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that, that we have to take it literally. Uh, the story is really about what would the world be like without anyone dying? As someone that's older, I'm 82 now, I can tell you that as you get older, you start to really definitely fear death because I'm not ready to die. I still have things that need to be done, you know, people to live for, my daughter. Uh, so yeah. there's no question that there is a fear that you don't have when you're younger. You don't think about it because you, when you're 30, 40, 50, even probably, I don't remember thinking about it in my 60s, you don't say, golly, I only have a few years to go, and I'm, I'm hoping I have 18 to go. Maybe I can reach 100. But it's definitely something that gets worse. The fear is way worse as you age because you, you, you didn't think, I never thought about it when I was younger, when I was in my 40s. I had a long way to go. I mean, look at it, I've lived 42 more years, you know. But, but I, un I understand all these stories because of my age yeah. that I wouldn't have understood when I was younger. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Barbara, for your comment. Um, and, you know, it goes without saying that on a personal wish for this year, as we always say, I wish everybody health, happiness, and continued strong, happy, healthy lives. I think that goes without saying. Um, and I'm not a psychologist, but I do think that maybe um, part of the message of these stories is it's healthy to think about these things as hard as it might be, right? Along with striving to be healthy and to do the things that you need to do, maybe the part of the stories is it's like something that we should think about not in a bad way, but just realize that there will come a time for every single one of us, whether you're now 12 or whether you're now 102, right? There will come a time, whether you think about it or not, right? We all know that this isn't going to last forever. Um, and I, I think that the difficulty of it is a lot, as with a lot of difficult things, um, maybe the shunning of our society and the fact that we just don't want to acknowledge it and we try so hard in so many different ways not to acknowledge it makes it even harder. Um, but again, it's hard for me to know. I'm, I'm 50. Thankfully, I'm very healthy. I will say I don't think about these things all the time. And I imagine like you, my life will change as I get older. I'm sure you're correct. Other couple last comments if we have a minute or two. Ziggy, I see your hand up there. 
their hand up. And then Ziggy. So Diane and Larry and then Ziggy. Diane and Larry and then Ziggy. So I'm going to take a little bit of a different point of view. Um, I haven't studied this, so I can't really reconcile it all. I think there's a huge difference between death, being dead, and the act of dying. And it seems to me that the first stories, the ones that were in the Moed Katan, were, were, were basically stories about the time, circumstance, place of dying, but not about the inevitability of death. And I think when we talk about the fear of death, which I don't think is as ubiquitous as you're all suggesting, or maybe I'm just weird, um, I think the fear of death is more about is less about the act of dying. I would die in a car crash. I would die from a painful disease or whatever. It's more about the fear of being death and not being in this world and continuing. And that, to me, is very different from the the the, the fear of the act of, of of death. So I see these as being very different stories, and um, I haven't reconciled, you know, what you know how they how they impact how I think about it, except to say something that my wife reminded me of just a minute ago, which was when my father died seven years ago, there wasn't the slightest bit of fear in his eyes. He was 93. Yeah, he was 93, so he lived a full life. I think we probably all know people who die after a full and, and good life without any fear, or at least without any apparent fear. Fear. And I have a lot to think about about that, but I won't say anything more. Thank you, uh, Larry. Ziggy, you wanted to add something too? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, to me, um, personally, uh, worrying and, and fearing death is a waste of time. It doesn't do anything. It'll come regardless, as you keep saying over and over again. To me, it's the quality of your life. It's not the quantity, it's the quality. And as long as you uh, live a good life, a fulfilling life, Especially now, around the Chagim, you know, it gives you another chance to think about it. What are you doing? How are you doing it? What should you do differently? I think that's what it's about. Uh, waste, spending any time worrying about dying. As my grandson was, uh, was asking me the other day, well, aren't you worried about it? No, I'm not at all worried about it. If it happens today or, or a year from today or 10 years from today, it's, you know you're gone. You don't know about it. It hits you. You're gone. Goodbye and good luck. Later on, but uh, you know it's the quality of your life. It's how you live it. I wish you a very good quality of life to everybody. Uh, just you know, the as many people as are here, we're probably going to have that many different approaches, attitudes. We're all individuals. We probably all change from one year to the next, from one moment to the next, from one state to the next, from early parts of our lives. As uh, as as Barbara was saying, these things change in our life. So we're all very different from one from another too, as much as we're all human beings and similar, we all also have our own individuality. Rebecca, you want to yeah. say one thing? I, um, uh, first of all, just thank you. This was a very meaningful discussion. And as I mentioned to you before we let everybody in, um, part of what I'm thinking about a lot right now is writing a Yisker sermon. And so this was something that was, was very interesting to think about. Um, and one thing that I'll just mention at the end of of the teaching that you just did, was it Ketubot, the last one? Yeah. Yes. Um, that, that there's something very interesting about the fact that 
he wants to take away death for everybody else, and yet the Malachamavet says, no, everyone has to go through this too. And I think that there's something powerful about that specifically right now through what we're going through in the world where we keep seeing numbers pile up of people who have died, and we just wish we could take it away. We just wish there was a way to just get rid of all of that and make, make it all better again. Um, and not to say that there is any rhyme and reason for the numbers um, of people or the, or the certain people who are dying by any stretch of the imagination, but this idea that we need to be doing something beyond just thinking about how we can get rid of it. We need to be figuring out how we can help those that are alive and dealing with potential grief or dealing with that fear, um, that that's our job. Our job is not to try to get rid of it, but to try to figure out what to do with the lives that we're living. Um, so that's what I'm taking away from that, from that teaching, that specifically that last teaching. And just thank you. I mean, as I started off by saying, you've always, you've always stretched the Talmud in ways that I've been impressed, and this was no exception. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.